What are we connected by, by, by? You are listening to Watershed Riders here on Midtown Radio. I'm your host, Tannis McDonald, and you'll be listening to an encore presentation of my interview with Kitchener Writer and Governor General's Award winner, Erin Bow. In this episode, I interview author Erin Bow about traveling to Mongolia to research Stand on the Sky, her book, which won the 2019 Governor General's Award for Young People's Literature in English. We also get to hear what's hair-raising about her book, Plain Kate, and how ideas turn into novels. Sit back and get transported to the steppes of Mongolia, where age-old tradition is overturned by one girl's bravery and determination to train an eagle. Then find out how Erin explores blood magic to transform an old Russian fairy tale for contemporary readers. We record in the Grand River watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our guest today on this first show of Watershed Writers is Kitchener writer Erin Bow, who describes herself as and I quote, a physicist turned poet turned author of novels that will make you cry on the bus, unquote. Now, this is an apt description, and clearly more than one reader has confessed to exactly how much Aaron's books have moved them. We're going to talk about that a little more in our interview. Raised in Nebraska, but a Grand River Country resident since the late 1990s, Aaron works at the Perimeter Institute as a science writer. She wins awards for her novels for young readers, and she writes poetry, often about science, that will make you gasp. She is the author of eight books, five novels for young people, two books of poetry, and a memoir about motherhood. The novels are two standalone high fantasies, including Plain Kate and Sorrow's Knot, and her science fiction duology, The Scorpion Rules and The Swan Riders. And her fifth and latest book, Stand on the Sky, won the Governor General's Award for Young People's Literature in English in 2019. This award came along with judges' comments that included this kind of praise. And again, I'm quoting, in writing that is both evocative and perfectly pitched for young readers, Stand on the Sky tells the heartfelt and gripping tale of a Kazakh girl who, despite cultural barriers, struggles to train a wild eagle. With its authentic voice, the novel transports the reader to the steppes of Mongolia and opens up a fascinating world where age-old tradition is overturned by one young girl's bravery and determination. And here are a few reviewers' words about Plain Kate from Canadian Children's Book News. Beautiful and haunting, tragic and lovely, this is a book that is as exquisite as it is disquieting. In simple but evocative prose, Erin Bow creates a fully realized world in which her story delicately unfolds with a fairy tale quality that will linger with readers. And I know it lingers for me. I first knew Erin on the page as a poet because poets always find other poets. 
And I recall reading her work in En Route magazine in 2001, the year she won the CBC Poetry Prize. By the time we started meeting at in-person events around KW, she was writing novels. And in today's show, we're going to talk about traveling to Mongolia to research Stand on the Sky, exactly what is hair raising about plain Kate, and how ideas turn into novels. Welcome to Watershed Writers, Erin. We're delighted to have you on our first show. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. I'm so delighted that you picked me. And I should go no further before I congratulate you on uh, winning the Governor General's Award for your middle grade novel, Stand on the Sky. Now, this was in 2018, am I right? 2019. 2019. Snuck in there before the pandemic. Right. And that's the last time I saw you, too, was at the Wild Writers Festival. Yeah, approximately the last time I left my home. Now, I wanted to talk about Stand on the Sky first. I'm going to talk to you about a couple of other books and your poetry. We're going to have quite a, quite a large discussion, quite a far-ranging discussion. Okay. Um, but the very first thing I want to know about is the birds. Stand on the Sky takes place in a, a Kazakh region of Mongolia. And of course, these are people who hunt with eagles. And so eagles and large raptors are very much a part of this book. So, so tell me about what it's like to be that close to eagles when they're small and, and when they're adult-sized. Eagles are really, really quite amazing. I have been obsessed with birds of prey most of my life. And I have been brewing this book about a child and a bird of prey for a long time. But to actually go to Mongolia and to live with a family that keeps eagles was an incredible experience. When we got there, there was an eagle that had just been taken from its nest, which means it's fairly close to full size, but not feathered out yet. And then over the six weeks or so that we stayed there with this family, the eagle slowly grew in its feathers and learned to make these adjustments with its wings. You could see it figuring out the wind slowly. And we were there the first day that uh, Alambai, the eagle hunter, his son had caught a rabbit, I'm not quite sure how, and they tied the rabbit to the end of a leash and the eagle, which has never hunted anything before ever, is sitting on Alambai's wrist with a hood over its eyes and you flick off the hood and there's this lightning strike moment. Just, it zoomed in on that rabbit in a heartbeat and it was just there. They can move at 150, 200 miles an hour in a dive. Wow. 50 in a level flight. Yeah. And they're big. A flying eagle in its first year is maybe 12 pounds, up to 14 or so. The velocity of that weight hitting velocity something is... is something. Yeah, um, it's formidable. Alan Bai had an eagle with, uh, and also in addition to the little eagle, it had a, he had a grown-up eagle that had a claw that was all bent up from tangling with a wolf, a detail that I actually put in the story. So these eagles can hunt deer and wolves. They usually don't. They usually hunt rabbits and foxes, but they are formidable beasties. Their claws are like this long. So this was a huge research piece for this book, was your trip to Mongolia and the time you spent there with a Kazakh family, and learning uh, not only uh, about um, hunting with eagles, but of course about many more things about their culture, about how it's structured, about uh, how their days are structured, and including some chores that I understand <laughs> that you had to do. 
in order to understand what a um, what a, a young woman like your protagonist Isolu, um, what she would do with her day and uh, the kinds of skills that she would develop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about about well the chores? Twelve year old girls from their own community, like we were cousins from the next village over, and they tried, but it turns out we don't have any of the skills it takes <laughs> to be a Kazakh woman. I mean, they kind of looked at us and they're like, these people, they can't milk anything. They're going to die when the cold winter comes. Because for girls and for women, life is basically about milk. We asked the family that we were staying with to treat us not as honored guests, although there's a certain amount of that in any hospitality culture like the Kazakhs. In the summer, the Kazakh nomads eat cheese and butter and a milk tea made with uh, salt. They make good noodles. And because we were honored guests, they slaughtered a goat. So we had a little bit of meat. But basically, that's it. Just so- cheese. Just cheese and milk all summer long, putting on winter weight. And of course, there's no refrigeration. So every day you need to milk everything and then process all the milk. So you get up at dawn and you milk the cows and the yaks. There are horses, they milk horses five times a day, which I was not allowed to do, which is fine. The horses are are very skittish about being milked. And then there are about 350 goats that go out with the boys every morning and come back in the evening and then you separate them out. I have to say that I I wasn't surprised, uh, of course, that the goats were milked and I wasn't surprised that the yaks were milked, but I was surprised that the horses were milked. That was was a moment of learning for me (laughs) reading this book. I thought, wow. The horse milk is the only milk that's kept separately. Everything else kind of goes into one big urn. The horse milk is kept separately and it's fermented into a drink called kumis. It's a little bit like maybe kefir. It's kind of a yogurty thing, but it's warm and bubbly and about 3% alcohol. And it's also their only source of vitamin C. So everyone yeah, has to partake or they'd be ill. So it's culturally a very important signifier drink. If you go to Mongolia, whether you want to or not, you need to try the kumis. I actually like it. I'm told most people don't. <laughs> You need to go and you need to try it and you need to be nice about it because it's important. I wanted to talk a little bit uh, more about uh, Isulu because I think she's um, such an intriguing character, so determined, so smart. And and of course, what she has to do in, in some ways is upend some of these traditions, certainly not all of them, mm-hmm. but the kind of tradition uh, that says that only men can hunt with eagles. But there's a significant moment in the story is when some of the women or one of the older women says women have always hunted with eagles and gives uh, Isulu the kind of motivation, that extra piece of motivation to to move forward. And I was interested in what you were doing with the kind of gender discussion you were having there. And even the eagle too undergoes a kind of gender switch, right? In it. And I thought that I thought that was intriguing as well. So I wanted to hear a little bit, yeah, about um about your work with gender uh, divisions here and, and the challenges that that brought to this book, which I think is it's part of the pleasure of reading it, but I also think it means uh, certainly writing with a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of innovation at the same time. When I went to Mongolia, I was already brewing a book about a, a boy and a hawk, actually, and I didn't really intend to make the protagonist a girl. But when I got there, 
Uh, first of all, the young woman that we hired as a guide was, she was born in a Kazakh nomad family and then went off to Ulaanbaatar uh, for a university degree. And her degree is in gender studies. So she has a lot to say or had a lot to say about gender roles in the Kazakh nomad communities. And then, of course, I was traveling away from my own children who were pretty small at the time. And I fell head over heels in love with one of the children of the community of the Al, as it's called, whose name was Kumsai. And she was eight, which is the same age as, as my daughter, Eleanor, was at the time. And they were a lot alike. They were just this this brilliant, inward-going, mathematical mind. Like, Kumsai, would, they have a dice game. They play with ankle bones. She learned, taught me to play it so that she could wipe me out every evening. Just <laughs> wipe the floor with me. Um, Shannon taught her origami, and she just took to that. She's just clearly a bright spark with probably pretty limited future. If she chose to stay among the nomads, that's hard because that way of life is getting harder and harder as the climate changes. So that way of life is a little bit closed. And then families will have five, eight children and pick two of them to go to university simply because that's what's affordable. And unless you go all the way to the national university, which is 2,000 miles away and in a different language, the only thing you can really do is teach or be a shopkeeper. You know, so I looked at this girl who was just so brilliant and so striving and so warm and so supportive of her family and proud of her traditions and just a brilliant young person and wondered what her future would be. Kumsai is not Aislu and Aislu is not Kumsai. Aislu isn't anyone real. She's a fictional person. But yeah, I think it was Kumsai that made me choose a girl. And of course, it's really happening, too. Uh, there are a handful of new Kazakh eagle hunters. This has been passed down for maybe 12, 15 generations as something that only men do. Before that, it was something that women did. And before that, again, it was something that everybody did. And then we go back into the myths of prehistory. So for 12 or so generations, there have been only men. But now there are a handful of girls says that it's been really inspiring to the young women of the nomad community to pick up this thing that is the most prestigious thing, the thing with the highest visibility among the culture, and that it's starting to change the distinction between men's work and women's work and girls' work and boys' work from this one particular point. I think this would be a great time to hear you read a bit from Stand on the Sky. Give us a, a little flavor of uh, what you've just been talking about. I would love to. I saw my protagonist in the opening scene. She's with her brother, Sarek, and her brother is, has been concealing a limp. And is really angry about it. Like He's very frightened that he's going to lose his role in the nomad community because it's a very difficult place to have any kind of physical handicap. So he's been hiding it. And one of the things he does to try to get over it is try to capture an eagle. And that effort goes wrong. And the eagle is killed and Sarek breaks his leg and is whisked away to a faraway hospital. They think there's something really wrong and there is. He turns out to have a bone cancer. But in this part, Isolu has just rescued the eagle that they've left orphaned. And of course she's thinking about her brother and she's gone to her rather odd auntie, 
who's sometimes called the fox wife and sometimes called by her name, which is Kara Kotkis, to get some help to raise this tiny baby eagle that's not doing so well that she's brought back to her camp. And they've just been out to catch mice. When they came back with the mice, the motherless eaglet was asleep, but not dead. His whole body seemed to heave with his breath. He looked so fragile. Iceloo put one finger on the soft down of the eaglet's head, but he did not stir. Hello, little, she coaxed. We brought you food. Split it open, said the foxwife, handing Iceloo a mouse and a knife. That's what his mother would do while he's small, and he is weak. Split it and give him the heart. Iceloo felt her lips move and her nose tighten up. Taking care of an eaglet involved more stickiness and crunching stuff than she had imagined, but she would not let it die. She opened the mouse skin as if it had a zipper and peeled it back from the tiny ribs. She plucked out the heart, little as a knot in yarn, and put it on her fingertip, and she eased the heart into the eaglet's limp beak. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the beak quivered and closed over the mouse heart. The foxwife handed her a long splinter of wood, and using this, I slew fed the eaglet bits of mice, scrap by scrap, livers smaller than pinky nails and grass-thin bones. And slowly, the eaglet woke up. Strength came into him, like butter forming in a churn. He got his splayed legs under him. He extended his funny long neck, so long he looked like a tiny sock puppet, and started to snap at the food. And when he had finished the third mouse, he looked up at Iceland. His eyes were dark, dark brown like hers, and bright like hers, like water that moves quickly. Those eyes looked at Iceland as if she were taller than the sky and twice as beautiful. Iceland stroked one finger down the softness of the eagle's back. Toktar, she breathed. Toktar meant he will live, and it was the eaglet's name. Only later did she think about her brother and the blue truck vanishing into the plume of dust and distance. Thank you. Hearing you read from it reminds me of how physical a book this is, certainly because it's about what it takes for a, for a very young animal, a young bird to, to live, to be raised, you know, and all of the physicality, of course, of, of the Kazakh nomad society where you work all day. And, uh, of course, riding the horse and the, and the training she undergoes to, um, to hunt with eagles. But one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about that is this idea of having permission to write about a community that isn't one's own. And I know there have been lots of stories in recent years about people who didn't have permission to write about a, a community, but you went there, you spent time with it, uh, with the Kazakh people, particularly with one a Kazakh family. You talked about how you were um, very attached to, to that eight-year-old. I'm interested in what kind of position that story and story leaving the community in this way had for uh, the Kazakh people with whom you work. The Kazakh people do not take this amiss. They are very happy to welcome outsiders. There's a little bit of concern about the tourist economy and people coming in to view the Eagle Festival specifically and the way that that's changing the nature of eagle hunting which has a very important role in the society because the festival is really just a side note. Eagle hunting is about hunting uh, and the fox furs and the relationship between the hunter and the eagle. It would be like, I don't know, confusing the Olympics with a university. They're two different things. 
And so for a middle grade book, my, my book actually contains a fair amount of critique of the tourist economy. Yes, I, an eagle uh, being displayed on the side of the road and got the idea that this was not actually a, 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 tra a, a traditional practice or mm -hmm. B, a practice that was a good use of an eagle. Yes, and the, the Kazakh eagle hunters that I talk to feel that way. They are opposed to you know this sort of direct exploitation of the eagles, but also very proud of their tradition and very happy to share it all. I don't think, you know, as white Westerners, it's not our role to decide for other cultures which things they are protective of. I think we should approach these things with care. And there are a lot of, it's a long conversation. There's cultural appropriation, which is taking something that's important to the culture, stripping it of its context and using it somewhere else. And I have to admit, there was a while when I was drafting this book going, this would turn out so much more commercial and get me in so much less trouble if it was the same story, but with eagle-sized dragons. And, you know, I, <laughs> I thought, actually, of, you know, in that, that moment when you're describing the bonding between uh, Tuktar and Isolu, I thought of Anne McCaffrey's Dragon's Dawn, yeah. Yeah, which is not to say they're doing the same thing, but there's, but it was that, that moment, that bonding between. That, that she does mm -hmm. it well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, clearly you, you have a, something very different going on here, but. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you brought up dragons as the, so that is cultural appropriation, right? Yeah. That taking something significant to their culture, stripping it of its context and using it commercially in your own context, like putting a bendy dot on as makeup. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, there are beautiful things from cultures that people are happy to share, but their culture is also at a point of transition. The global warming. I asked Tansai about this directly. I'm like, is this a bad thing? The tourism, the pressure to urbanize, the, what are the pressures on these traditional societies? And her answer was unequivocal, it's global warming. It's the shift in the climate. You know, so they're part of the world. They're not a little thing that we need to protect and keep in a museum. Again, you know, one of the boundaries one draws around stories is the secret and the sacred. This is neither a secret nor a sacred story. I was raised Catholic and I haven't recovered, but I am trying to reupholster a little bit. Um, you know, so like angels in YA fantasy make me a little uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. you know, it's a sacred story and I don't like seeing it in that context, but this is not a sacred story. The other question one can raise is own voices. Like, should we find, should a white person have written this book at all? And I think unless we can get a Kazakh nomad to write a book and weigh in on that, that's not an answerable question. What I've always come down to personally is two basic roles. First, don't take somebody else's space on the shelf. So I will not be writing like a book about black people living in New York because there are black people living in New York who should write that book, right? I will not be writing a book about a trans character because trans people should be writing those books and they should have that space on the shelf and I should not get in their way. So don't take someone's space on the shelf and then don't use someone else's pain as your ink. If there's a story that is a deep, painful, important story, like say slavery in the Americas, that's not my pain and it shouldn't be my ink. But I am a great believer in having diverse casts and in drawing from traditions all over the world. And you know, it's a long, it's a complicated conversation. It's a point of real 
inflection and friction and conflict in the children's literature community right now, which I think is just growing pains. We need to do better. Yeah. 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 Well, we, I think we that's true. That. That's true of all genres, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't point to a literary community that I think uh, has gotten it, you know, perfectly uh, correct. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I think that, you know. that we can say this is true of, of, of Canadian literature as well, right? All Canadian Absolutely. Literature. Absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about what your aims are when you're writing uh, like a middle grade novel? What have some young readers reactions been to your books? Oh, I love hearing from young readers. They're just the best. (laughs) What's interesting about getting mail from young readers is seeing it through the lens that they take from it, which is often a very narrow lens. Plain Kate, my first book, is a Russian-inspired fantasy with a talking cat in it. It's about the witch hunts. It's very dark. There's a lot of blood magic. It's basically me working out the rules of grief. And the mail I get from eight-year-olds is like... (gasps) I loved the cat. Do you love cats? I have a cat. Does your cat talk? I think all cats can talk. They just don't find us worthy. I'm like, you're absolutely right about that, child. I don't know why you're reading this book. It would have scared me to death. They're lovely. They pick up on particular things and really seize on them and make them part of their own heart in a way that most adult readers don't. I was that kid. I was totally that kid who was passionate about the about the books that I read and mm-hmm. and would reread them over and over again. So I, you know, I think it's a real value for young readers, right? To to either see part of their world reflected, the the talking cat, right? Or of course things that are fantastic that they might wish were true, or of course, as you point out, the the very scary. I, I was scared in playing Kate. I was very oh, yeah. scared in playing Kate. As a reader, you know, I faked myself out because I read Stand on the Sky first. And mm-hmm. so I'm thinking, <laughs> and this will be not the same book, but it might have the same you know, some of the same things. There's lots in Plain Kate that's quite violent. I'm glad you use the phrase blood magic because there's that, but there's like deep manipulation too mm-hmm. um, uh, on behalf of some of the characters uh, because people really want some things to get done and they don't care who's in their way, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting that the, the young readers are all about the talking cat, which I confess I was too. I love that talking cat and kept looking over at my own cat saying, and where's your witty Oscar Wilde-like conversation? But I was also, yeah, really taken aback by, uh, by the violence. And I feared for that young woman a lot of the time in a way that I didn't fear for Isolu. She was by her family and her community in a way that Kate is not. Kate is an outcast and an outsider. And she's very alone for much yeah, of the book. Had, she lived a precarious existence and then her father dies and then the town turns on her and all the supports of her existence are kicked away. So she's a very vulnerable person in a very violent time. So, yeah, I hope that the violence isn't gratuitous, but it, it certainly does have extremely dark moments. And the villain is creepy. Oh, he's super creepy. (laughs) Super creepy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, she witnesses a lot of violence too. Kate witnesses a lot of violence as, uh, and is also um, the victim of some of it as well. Mm -hmm. And how do you approach working with that violence in a novel, particularly a novel for younger readers, Mm -hmm. especially when the victims of the violence are young women? Yeah. You will notice that none of the violence in this comes to her because she's a young woman. I mean, it's, it's not sexualized. Right. She, she is of lower status, 
Um, but none of that is related to her gender very much. Um, that is kind of just personally, I don't like that, especially for very young readers. But I can't remember who said it, um, but it's okay to take young readers to a dark place as long as you don't leave them there. Mm. Or uh, Chesterton, who says that fairy tales don't tell children that dragons exist. They tell them dragons can be beaten, right? I think it bothers adults a lot more than it bothers children, frankly, to have these darker themes and these adventures and the sense of danger. Because children, I think, genuinely do feel themselves often and sometimes are in real danger that they simply can't get out of. Yeah. It's healing and hopeful to have protagonists in books who also face down big things and, uh, and come out on the other side. There are not many children's books where the protagonist does not come out on the other side. And the ones I have read, I haven't been a huge fan of. I'm just like, ooh. You are listening to Watershed Writers here on Midtown Radio. Join me next week when my guest will be Dawn Cheryl Hill. We'll be talking about Memory Keeper, her new book from Agisto Publishing. You know, I think it's interesting if we if we're comparing this to um, what we've come to think of as traditional fairy tales, which um, in this culture is usually in Western culture we usually think of the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, if we're talking about those kinds of stories, adults often forget that it begins with uh, children in peril. It begins with children with uh, sometimes with an adult who does not love them, mm-hmm. with an adult who plots to get rid of them, mm-hmm. uh, with them being lost in the woods. And these kinds of things that, as you say, are what many children deal with every day mm-hmm. and can't escape from. So, uh, I mean, is it Bruno Bettelheim who talks about the whole uh, idea of telling stories is telling fairy tales is to uh, bring to life uh, the violence that children know every day, yeah. right? the kind of psychological violence that they know every day. Mm-hmm. But Hansel and Gretel don't, aren't just lost in the woods. They're abandoned in the woods because their parents are starving, right? These stories are much darker than we remember them being. Yeah. Much darker yeah. than filtered through this layer of, of Disney and then this yeah. impulse in the beginning of the 19th, late 19th century to balderize them and clean them up and give them happy endings. And that's as adults, we remember the happy endings. We don't remember the fact that it begins with a child in, in peril, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're really dark. The thing I did immediately before reading Plain Kate was read a 500-page vo- volume of Russian folktales, the Pantheon collection of Russian folktales. So a lot of the darkness that comes in there is sort of inherited from that. And the sense of strangeness that, you know, as someone who raised on the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and the child ballads, you know, it's just over the edge of the map. And, oh. They have a lot of shadows that eat people. and You know, I read David Denchuk's uh, The Bone Mother last year, and I don't know if you've read it. I haven't, but it's on my list. Yeah, it's just full of these Ukrainian horror figures uh, that are traditional, and some of it made my hair stand on end, um, both because it was familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. I'm from from Winnipeg, where Ukrainian culture is uh, very strong. In fact, we even have a dance troupe called the Rasalka Dancers, 
I was very interested in your use of the mythical figure of the Rasalka and her part in the blood magic. And I think I want to have you talk a little bit about your choice to, to use that figure. Yes, yeah, some of the ways that you employed it as a figure of, of loss and grief. Mm-hmm. I always have in a story something I call the original equipment, which is a little bit more than an idea and a little bit less than a premise. And in this case, it's like this girl and she's forced to sell her shadow and she gains a talking cat, which is the plot of Act One. And I got to the end of that and I'm like, well, now what? She's got a talking cat and no shadow and a witch crate, which is a lot for a plot. I gave it to a friend, uh, Noelle Allen, who's the editor at Wolzek and Wynn. I think you probably know her work. And she's like, you need you need to put a Rusalka in it. And I'm like, what's a Rusalka? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think she said it as a one-off because it's one of her favorites. So a Rusalka is a ghost figure. Specifically, it's the ghost of a woman who has been murdered. And in some accounts of this, a Rusalka's fate can be undone by avenging her death. And so that becomes the villain's motivation and his through line in the story. So it's why he wants Kate's shadow and why he's doing what he's doing and the manipulation behind the landscape. It kind of gives you the piece of the plot that's not driven by Kate's choices or driven by what he wants to do too. So the Rusalka, the dead Rusalka, whose name is Lenore, is his sister. And he wants to first sort of keep it fed so that it doesn't dissolve or go mad or kill everyone or whatever it is that's going to happen, clearly not good. So he wants to keep it fed with this blood magic, which is really quite frightening. And also he wants to avenge this woman's fate. So, which eventually involves taking it out on an entire city. Not of nice people, but still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, yeah, indeed. And it's, it's, it's bone chilling. It's actually shelved over in the YA section. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about the, the process of starting this book, because I hear that your first child wasn't a very good sleeper in their early years, and uh, that you spent some time driving around southwestern Ontario uh, trying to get them to sleep and wrote part of the book that way. Is that right or is that apocryphal? Oh, that's true, but oh, okay. I started it. Um, <laughs> it's how I finished it. My, my, um, my older child, they had colic when they were little. Yeah, the only way we could get them to sleep was to drive around. Like, they would sleep if they were in their car seat, just a beautiful little dowsy head. Looks so innocent. Creaming weasel, oh my Lord. <laughs> So yeah, we drove a lot and I wrote the, I finished this book in the front seat of the car, but I started it on an airplane before I had kids taking off out of the fog in Moncton. And I just read this big set of uh, Russian fairy tales and I, I was thinking about them. I just talked to my dad who is a carpenter, a woodworker, the way Kate is in my story and her father is in my story. And I was taking off out of the fog and the plane left its shadow on the fog and pulled away from its shadow is the way nothing earthbound ever does. Pulls away from its shadow and the shadow kind of thins out and warps and gets thinner and stranger and bigger and loses the shape of the plane and then it's gone. And I looked at that, oh, it's such a fairy tale image. It's so Russian. 
And into my head waltzed this character who was going to sell her shadow. And she's a woodcarver and the daughter of a woodcarver. It's got this Russian setting and it's about shadows and loss. And I wrote the first chapter on the plane and I can't tell you where it came from, except that that's when it came. You know, that, that question that um, beginner writers often ask, which is, you know, how do you get your ideas? And um, one of my answers to young writers when they ask is, you get ideas all the time, but what a writer does is recognize what an idea is. Yeah. And mm -hmm. put time into writing it down. I always love hearing these kinds of generative stories, right? Like the, the first image, right? But, but of course, you know, I always feel compelled to follow up on that by saying, and then you spent three years writing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> ideas are like that, right? Yeah. You can have an idea in a second and then it's the commitment to writing it and, and the belief in it that this single image is, an, is actually worth investing in and worth creating. And figuring around. out which ones you want to spend the next two, three, four years of your life with. Yeah. And I often have what I think is a whole idea but turns out to only be part of an idea. So Plain Kate didn't really come together till someone suggested a Rusalka and I looked it up and I'm like, oh, okay. The talking cat is a huge character in Plain Kate. And I, I really understand why all those young readers are, are drawn to him, to Taggle. I'd love it if you could read a piece from Plain Kate that, uh, yeah, that gives us a, a little bit of who he is and why he is. Give us, okay. All right. Let's give him his first word. Let's, let's give him the moment where... Um, so the bad guy, Lene, is a witch, and he has backed uh, Plain Kate into a corner so that she has to trade with him for the goods she needs to survive. She has to flee her town, so she needs, like, a backpack and some food. But the only thing she has to trade is, is her shadow. And the other thing to know about this is that magic in this book is an exchange of gifts. So he's going to give her more than just the backpack, but she doesn't appreciate that yet. She chickens out at the last moment and tries to run away, so I'll start from there. Where are you going? said Linnae. Plain Kate began to babble something, but Linnae had risen to his feet silently as a wave. His hand flashed and his wrist flicked. Blood flew and fell over Kate like a net. She leapt back shouting and taggled the cat, spilled from her arms and howled like a dying thing, and then the air turned to glass. Stay said Linnae, soft coaxing into the sudden silence. Kate couldn't move, couldn't breathe. Taggle lay belly flat as if his back were broken. Linnae looked at her with his head tilted, smiling softly as a father smiles at a sleeping child. Plain Kate thought she was dying and that when she died, she would remain as a statue held in place by the stiffness of the air. Lene reached out a hand for her. She was sure he would die. She would die when he touched her, but she could only watch his hand coming. And then he did touch her. And the air was air again. And Kate crashed and staggered to the deck. The world spun and sparks shot through her vision. Lene loomed over her, dim and white as a pillar. Well, said the witch, that's that. What? Kate gasped. She coughed and blinked. Taggle shook his head hard, his ears flapping. I've left your goods around the third big stone at the bend of the road, but plain Kate couldn't stop him. She couldn't even see him. He was a sort of white shadow above her. She lay panting on the wet wood, her hair hanging down over the deck edge towards the river. He looked down at her, his face fuzzy, 
and she thought he looked genuinely sad. Loss of a shadow is a slow thing, he said. You'll have a little time before someone notices. Find a place to belong before that happens. Then he sang, go fast, plain Kate, and travel light. Learn to walk a shadowy night. Without a shadow, flee from light, become a shadow, truly. Will you come with me, he asked, to the stone city? No, she could hardly get the word out. No, he echoed, but I will see you again, I think. And he rose and went, leaving her lying helplessly on the dark, in the dark beside the water. It was a long time before she could sit up, before Taggle could gather himself enough to resume sniffing around the meat pie. Plain Kate leaned forward and pressed the heels of her hands into her eyelids until she saw spots. Something had been taken from her, and though it was supposed to be her shadow, she felt as if it might have been her soul. What did I do, she muttered. Over by the meat pie, her cat gave a hiss and a hairball cough. Plain Kate opened her eyes. M musicians, the cat spat. Do you know what fiddle strings are made of? <laughs> I am glad he's gone. Let's eat. <laughs> I, I love how much Taggle um, has to say about what he's eating, how often he's eating, and, and how he should be eating much more. Um, because I think those are very, very cat-like concerns. Um, but I think one of the reasons, I would say for me, why he's... Um, such a special character is how protective he is of Kate. And I thought, aha, an ally. <laughs> yeah, just what you need to escape from the witch burning mobs, a talking cat. Was he fun to write? He's so much fun to write. I'm going to say what's on my mind, and it's about sausages. <laughs> He's a hoot. Stand on the Sky started as a book about a boy rewilding a hawk at a nature station in Kansas. And I wrote myself into a corner with that and kind of simmered on it for a long time. And then I saw the um, images. You may have seen them too, because they're fairly famous. From Asher Spendinsky, who's a BBC photojournalist, of the young people training with eagles yes. in Mongolia, the new generation of eagle hunters. And I went, oh, there's a whole new set of possibilities for a story and an ending that don't exist for technical reasons having to do with falconry in Kansas. I was like, oh, there, there it is. So I sometimes get my ideas from colliding them with other ideas at high speed, which I suppose is what happens when you get a particle physicist turned novelist. You just bang them together and see what comes out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you know, we're, we're back to Stand on the Sky, and I, I want to ask about this originary hawk story. Oh, okay. Yeah, this this idea that there was, well, yeah, I'm calling it the originary hawk, the, the hawk that, that first stuck in your imagination. My hawk. Yeah. The boy's hawk, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been obsessed with hawks for a long time. And as far as I can tell, this is the origin story, although origins are always murky. When I was a kid, we, we lived in the suburbs, no place special, but on a dead end street next to what Canadians would call a wood lot. I thought it was a forest. You know, <laughs> there's a little creek running through it. It flooded all the time, so it couldn't be built on. And there were trees and kind of a meadow and deer and foxes and uh, monarch butterflies. And I don't suppose it was very big, but it was, you know, my wildlands. A wild country. 
And I spent a lot of time just whacking my way through there with a stick and digging the clay up out of the creek bed and making things and capturing gardener snakes and bringing them home in pails to keep for pets, which my mother didn't let me do. You know, gathering up fox mandibles and bits of, you know, bits of bone and just generally being a witchy little child. And one day I was in the woods and I came across a hawk that was hanging from the tree upside down by its jesses, a tame hawk, a falconer's hawk, tangled up in a tree and hanging upside down and thrashing around. And it was, it was just, it was so violent. They're so much bigger than you think they are when they're right at your eye level. And it was desperate. It was just, it was thrashing about and then it would just hang there like it was dead. And I was, you know, fascinated, but also panic stricken, but also how do you rescue the hawk without getting killed? And then the falconer came along and untangled the hawk and, you know, fed it something and stroked it and calmed it down and then launched it again. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, my entire life now is going to be about falconry. I, I went through a major falconry phase <laughs> as a young person. I read um, T.H. White's The Goshawk and have some argument with that. I mean, part of this book is an argument with that book you know, all these books about falconry and and then the Kazakh eagle dreams about going to Mongolia. Everything I could find. I love. My Side of the Mountain. Does anyone remember that one? Yes. Huh. That was a huge favorite for me. <laughs> and this is my gender story about My Side of the Mountain. Somehow I missed that it was a boy. Oh, because she was you. Because she was me. And I was just waiting for my chance to move away from my from my suburban home and live in a hollowed out oak. Absolutely. I was a little crushed when I you know, got a little older and realized it wasn't going to happen. I, I thought it was my destiny. So, yeah, it goes way back. I loved animal stories when I was a kid. I liked My Side of the Mountain and um, Where the Red Fern Grows and... All these terrible books in which the animal dies, you know, the yearling and Bambi mm. and Gil. Sounder. Sounder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Part of my reason for writing Stand on the Sky is to write an animal book in which the animal lives. It's a book with an animal and a sticker. Children are rightly suspicious. Yeah. Right. There's yeah, a dog indeed. and a sticker on the cover of the book. That dog is going down. Okay, I, I have some, some more writerly questions okay. for you uh, that might come back to the books. And in fact, I am going to ask about um, all the study guides to Plain Kate. Mm -hmm. I, I went online and there's like 20 of those things, right? In I which read them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and they're of varying degrees of, of um, rigor. Mm -hmm. What is it like to have your book positioned as something that um, is going to be a, a point of inquiry to not one person, but to whole groups of people. It's very strange. It's like someone gave you a decoder ring and you didn't realize you'd written a code. I mean, of course, stories always say more than you think they do. And of course, they have deeper meaning and they act as launching points for conversations, which is good. And it's good to have guides for those conversations in like a classroom setting. But sometimes people are like, you know, why did the author include the woodcarvers in the, and I'm like, author doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that a book is something that the reader and the writer write together, I think is, is something that I, that I talk about a lot, you know, in the classroom. And sometimes I, I say what I think is uh, amounts to 
what my, some of my students think is heresy is that the author isn't always going to reveal to you why something happens. A, because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't know, or B, because they know, but they want you to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they want the reader to to decide for themselves. Yeah. And in, the, in an important sense, their books belong to their readers, not to the authors. You know, so people write to me, not mostly about playing Kate, although sometimes it's like, what happens to them next? But mostly about my science fiction universe and the Scorpion rules. And they ask specific questions about specific characters that they want to know more about. I'm like, well, this is what's in my research files, but it's not in the text. You can imagine whatever it is that you want to imagine, you know, fan fiction writers to your posts and please share when you're done, because I would love to see what you come up with. I think you're right. It is a joint enterprise. It's, it's something of a miracle that I can put on this paper, just a series of figures and create a character you halfway there. And then you can go into this book with this series of little magic signals and pull that character out. And together we create this thing, this living, breathing person. My books are well known for making people cry. People cry over these fictional people. You know, they, they seem very real. They seem very real to me. And I think they seem very real to many readers. I hope they do. And that's so weird. <laughs> it's such a deep piece of magic. It doesn't make any sense that it should work, but it does. But it does over and over again, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the that that's the incredible thing, right? It's mm-hmm. that there's, you know, you're the author of, of many books. And so do you ever sit down and think, I don't know if I've got it in me one more time? Oh, sure. Uh, those yeah. are days. <laughs> it's like this one is stuck. It's never going anywhere. I've been faking it for seven books and clearly I'm done now. Yeah. Are you thinking it now about your current project? Right now, I've just finished writing one book. It's kind of out for sale. So it's meeting the world for the very first time. And the other one I'm editing. And so I'm sending it out to like very early readers, fellow authors for the very first time. I'm not feeling like I will never write again because that's not where I am right now. But often I feel that way. Quite often. Can you say anything about how the pandemic has or has not affected your process? The pandemic's been tough at our house. Um, my kids are 14. My older kid turned 15 during the pandemic and 12. Neither one of them are in school. So we have we have care for elderly people, so we just need to keep our household closed up. Neither one of them found distance education very useful, so we're trying to homeschool them. I have a job that you know, I used to do in a different building and keep sort of mentally separate. And now I do in this space. It's been been a long year. I think it's been a long year for a lot of creative people. Writing is for me sort of, until you get the door open and share it with people, it's an intensely solitary thing. You sort of spend a lot of time very quietly. I'm in my garden shed right now. So it's very quiet talking to fictional people. And when I can't get that solitude, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, indeed. I remember clearly at the at the beginning of pandemic restrictions, there was that thing running around online about how um, Shakespeare had written King Lear in uh, when he was isolated for the bubonic plague. The LA Times was predicting um, like this surge in new book, like people submitting books to agents and publishers. I'm like, oh, go away, LA Times. Yeah. Okay, I want it switch a little bit here and ask you to uh, to talk a little bit about poetry. 
Fun. Okay. And the writing of poetry. This is how I, I first uh, read you as Aaron Noteboom when mm-hmm. you uh, won the CBC Poetry Contest a number of years ago now. Yeah. And so I, I've always thought of you as a poet first, which is, is that accurate? I think so. Yeah. yeah? Okay. I, I, I wrote poetry first. I still write poetry. I mean, I don't work on it every day, but I work on it a lot. Uh, it's sort of always at the back of my thoughts. I read a lot of poetry. It does not pay the bills and it does not come with the sort of pressure filled deadlines of fiction. So I've been turning out fiction in a little bit faster way. But yeah, I I think of myself, I usually describe myself as a poet and a novelist. I'm interested too, not only in thinking about how your poetic practice sits alongside the practice of writing prose, but also how your training in the sciences shows up in in each of those. And I'm most familiar with um, your poems that do have to do uh, with the sciences. I just read um, Curie and Love, uh, Up at Rattle, which I I loved. Maybe you'll read that for us. And also, I remember you and I were both in a a special issue of the New Quarterly for the uh, Quark issue, right? Calling me a scientist is like calling a kid who dropped out of med school a doctor. So I come with a certain scientific frame of mind, but I've never actually like done research to generate new knowledge in the world. And since I work at Perimeter as a science writer with actual scientists, I feel obliged to say that what. <laughs> but yeah, I, I trained as a particle physicist. I'm really interested. I've always been interested in physics. I still am. I want to ask you the question uh, about the, the scientific practice as it appears in your poetic practice. And of course, what all this might have to do with with writing prose. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in that kind of triangle, That's right? Big, the big two genres and the interest in science. Mm-hmm. Here's a good one. They have in common that they reward this kind of really deep attention to the world, this sort of long, slow, kind of difficult attention to the world. You know, reading a book is one thing and working out a set of physics problems in your high school textbook is one thing, and that's fine. Developing the theory of physics to work out this, that's a whole different. And writing that book, that's a whole different thing, you know. So it's working down underneath the layers of what people experience to to create, particularly with poetry. I used to think that I really, my favorite thing about science is discovering these. Well, I never discovered one, but understanding these really surprising connections. Force is change. F equals MA or energy is matter. That's the same thing as metaphor, right? Right. We could say love is grief. And to work out exactly where that connection is and like embody it in one puzzle of a poem, but in one durable way of saying something, you know, that the wind and the green wheat makes the sound of a scythe being sharpened something about time and change and mortality. And I love metaphor and poetry gives it to me purely the way physics equations do. That's great. I love that. Will you uh, read Curie in Love for us? Marie Curie, who's just so much more interesting than you think she possibly could be. So this is Curie in Love. The things that sound as if they are direct quotations actually are direct quotations. They're from her journals and notebooks. And the poem has an epigram from her doctoral dissertation. If a radioactive substance is placed in the dark in the vicinity of a closed eye or of the temple, a sensation of light fills the eye. Marie Curie, doctoral dissertation, 
1903. The sensation of light is light. There is no way for her to know it. She is so young and so in love, choosing for her wedding gown a navy dress suitable for use in laboratories. Hand in hand, they slip through the university courtyard, Pierre and Marie Curie, the world before the war. One of our joys was to go into our workroom at night, she wrote, to perceive on all sides the feebly luminous silhouettes of the bottles and capsules of our work. That light marbles and embarnacles them both, turns their fingers strange and fibrous. Soon enough, he cannot rise from bed. It was really a lovely sight and always new to us. She loses 20 pounds, two pregnancies. There is no way for her to know that light will soon paint gun sights on the dials of watches, that it is ticking through her body, his body, faster than time. What she has understood is astonishing enough. The atom, active. It is as if marbles were found to be breathing out, as if stones were found to speak. Sick and stumbling, Pierre is struck down by a cart of military equipage. He passes untouched under the hooves of six horses, untouched between the front wheels, between the turns of chance and miracle, before six tons and the back wheel open his skull and kill him instantly. Thus closes the deterministic world. Your coffin was closed and I could see you no more. I put my head against it. From the cold contact, something like a calm or intuition came to me. She does not record him speaking. That light, she has no way of knowing. It is ionizing radiation, entering the eye, lighting the eye gel the way a cooling pool is lit around a great reactor. Her hair was thick then and thickly piled, her fingers smooth, her thighs like marble. She closes her eyes and raises the vial. Wow. <laughs> I... Uh... I look forward to uh, reading this book of poems. I, I realized I had asked you about what you were writing uh, novel-wise, uh, prose-wise, but I hadn't asked about the poetry and I'm very glad I did. Mm -hmm. Our time here is starting to draw to a close. Erin, I just want to thank you for being so willing to come on our uh, Watershed Writers and to congratulate you again on uh, your productivity and on, well, being a writer in the pandemic and know that you're welcome uh, back on this show anytime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's delightful to have a new way to showcase writers in the region. There's so much talent here. You've been listening to Watershed Writers here on Midtown Radio. You can listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. or catch up on episodes by going to our website or to SoundCloud. I'm your host, Tannis McDonald. John Roscoe is our technical producer, and Francis Roberts Riley is our producer. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Next week, we'll talk with Cheryl Dawn Hill about her book, Memory Keeper. Join us then to listen local and think global. Global.